The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, came forward and put this question to Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If someone's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, his brother must take the wife and raise up descendants for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman, but died childless. The second and the third married her, and likewise all the seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. Now at the resurrection, whose wife will that woman be? For all seven had been married to her. Jesus said to them, the children of this age marry and remarry. But those who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like angels. And they are the children of God because they are the ones who will rise that the dead will rise, even Moses made known in the passage about the bush when he called out, out Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. There is a deliberate parallel in the way the readings are chosen today, but not as obvious as it could be. Otherwise, our first reading would be much, much longer. Our first reading from the books of Maccabees, like the gospel, is really an account of seven brothers. It is one of the most remarkable passages in the Old Testament. The martyrdom, one brother after another for the sake of faith, seven of them who die. And curiously, then we have this instance in our gospel reading today, which also mentions seven brothers, not martyrs, but seven brothers, all of whom die. And the note that runs through the readings that brings about this relationship between these two different family situations, the all too real and at first glance tragic situation of the seven martyrs in the Old Testament and the hypothetical situation that is placed before Jesus in our gospel reading is the issue of the resurrection of the dead and what that means. As our year comes to an end, and the liturgical year only has a couple weeks left, there is a note of ultimacy about our scriptures 
as we deal with the question of what is the end, the goal, the final outcome of all things, including our life. This is why, in no small measure as well, November is the month of the faithful departed. And we begin the month as well with a note of very real ultimacy, considering the great many whom we have known and had relationships with who have passed away. And we gather in our faith in the resurrection to pray for them. So how wonderful that this issue of the resurrection is now placed directly before us in our readings today. And note in our first reading, it becomes the drumbeat that the brothers all sound. You, O king, will torture me in this world. You, O king, will threaten me and make my life difficult in this world. You, O king, will wound me and even end my life in this world. But as the one brother says, but I'm really sorry about your luck because this world is not the great world. And I am living not for the continuation and the prolonging of my life merely in this world. I am living toward a life that will be given back to me in the world to come. And you cannot rob me of that. And I will not set that aside because of your threats. And so it appears to be a small issue at the beginning of the reading. The king is trying to force them to eat pork. This is not simply a matter of, here's a sandwich, why don't you eat this? Because he's using a detail of the Jewish law to have the brothers make a public statement. And the issue is not whether in some absolute sense pork is good or bad to eat. The issue is it's been set up that if they take the pork and they eat it, they are making a public declaration that I am separating myself from the way the Lord has given us to live. Note how powerful that is. On the one hand, it seems like a small thing. But that small thing, and the world often does this. It says, why are you so worried about this detail? But it's the world that's turning that detail into a big thing. And that when you do this, what you're really doing is you're turning your back on grace and you're siding with me. You are saying, my fear for my well-being is greater than my desire for eternal life. You are saying, my need to make peace with you who are wicked is more important than my need to maintain my relationship with God who is good. And When we put it that way, that pork sounds a lot less appealing, doesn't it? And so knowing what is happening, that this is not some small accidental thing, but you are asking me by the pressure you're putting on me to make a public witness, the young men say, okay, then I'll make a public witness. And my public witness is no to you. And there is no threat that you can make against me. No harm that you can do to me that is greater than the value I am holding on to. And so I will not let it go. 
But note how strong, how invincibly strong their commitment to the resurrection must be to do this. Because honestly, if their faith is as tepid as ours can be, that doesn't happen. It's pass the mustard with the sandwich and I'll be okay. But these young men are so absolutely convinced that those who faithfully serve the Lord even at the cost of their well-being and their life will be rewarded by that same Lord who will raise them out of their graves and give them a life that was better and more perfect and more joy-filled than the one that they laid down in his service. Would that we could all feel the same way. Would that our desire for eternal life be as strong as that. Would that our conviction that this world is not the ultimate reality be that strong. Because it is in this world that our ultimate and eternal destiny is worked out. And it is worked out by what we do with the limited time we have been given. And this is now the context for the Sadducees approaching Jesus. Because in Israel at the time of Christ, not everybody looked for the resurrection of the dead. Not everybody believed in it. The Pharisees were very significant religious leaders. They were often in charge of the sacrifices at the temple. And they did not accept the notion of the resurrection of the dead. And it was a real division within the people of God. We who are Christians who for 2,000 years have based our faith on the resurrection often overlook that or forget that. It's not something that was that obvious 2,000 years ago. And so it is that this party of deeply religious men comes to Jesus. And they've been having fights and arguments with the followers of Jesus. They've been having fights and arguments with the Pharisees about this issue of the resurrection from the dead. And the arguments were often violent ones. In fact, in the Acts of the Apostles, there's a point where Paul is hauled before a Jewish court and he uses the disagreement over the resurrection to get himself out of it because the Pharisees and the Sadducees start fighting with each other and they stop paying attention to him. So this is a real issue, a live issue, and they come with this question, as many people often will, they want to create the most ridiculous example possible to make a point. And so they come to Jesus and they say, all right, let's, let's give an example. And you ever notice that we often do this in conversation with one another too? Especially one who's reluctant to believe. And we begin with the hypotheticals, and they get more and more complicated, more and more divorced from reality as we move forward. And then the question is, now what do you say about that? This is what's happening now. They take a piece of the Jewish law and they come to Jesus. And this law is called the law of Leverite marriage. And so a husband takes a wife, he has no children, and he passes away, and there is written into the law the obligation for one of his brothers to then take that woman as his wife to raise up a child who will bear the name of his brother who passed away. 
This unfortunately doesn't say an awful lot about the woman's dignity and the woman's status. Um, and because it implies almost that she belongs to the family of her husband. And the issue is she is obliged to raise up children not merely for herself, but for her husband. And this is the situation that they put before Jesus. And so they give the example. And because they want to make a point at the cost of being ridiculous, they multiply the example. And then that brother dies too, and he doesn't have a son. So fortunately, there's a third brother. And he comes, the poor woman, and he marries the woman. And then he dies without having a son. And everybody's getting older. And then brother number four comes, and brother number five comes, and brother number six comes, and brother number seven comes. Now, those of you who are working hard with the existing marriage that you have, just, just think about how tough this is going to be. <laughs> and in the end, all of those marriages prove fruitless on the level of producing a child. And then finally, the woman dies. You can almost hear Jesus saying, oh, thank God. <laughs> and so this is the situation. And again, note the question and note the, note the unhealthy note of belonging that comes with the question. In the resurrection, when they all come back to life, to whom does she belong? It's not who will be her husband. It's whose wife will she be? There's that note of possessiveness that runs through this as if the woman in the example can do nothing other than belong to someone else. And there are a number of problems with this example. Socially, I've alluded to several. But now let's just pause and look at this, because hidden within the silliness is something very important, something that is deadly, absolutely deadly serious. The first is a wrong-headed notion about what the resurrection and the life to come is. The life that we look for and the resurrection from the dead is not looking for this life only better. We do not look for a mere earthly paradise where everything that we know is simply reproduced only better. This was the terrible idea that animated those who crashed planes into the Twin Towers that if they died as martyrs, they would inherit an earthly, pleasurable paradise. With the note, literally, of each of the men receiving a number of virgins in the afterlife. Note that idea, then, of the belonging again, and what I get. And so the Sadducees are talking about the resurrection as if all it is is the continuation of, the extension of, the prolongation of what we have now. And so Jesus answers them by taking that off the table. Because if that's what the resurrection is, the Sadducees are right. That's not what we believe. That is not what will happen. So Jesus says, the life to come, the life of those who have risen in glory, is not a mere copy and a mere improving of this world. 
it is something radically different, radically better, so much better, in fact, that we can't begin to truly imagine it. And it's important to recognize that, though, because sometimes our ideas of heaven have a certain slipperiness about them. It seems so vague. It's because of this. Imagine this world with no shadow or power of death or sin or violence or selfishness. And if we're honest, we really can't. Because everything we know assumes violence and selfishness and sickness and loss and death. And so much of what we do is at the service of trying to prolong our temporal lives and protect ourselves from those things that are threats. The way society is organized, the way our houses are designed, the quality of the clothing that you will wear in the coming weeks when you say, I can't believe Father is having outdoor mass, it's so cold. <laughs> Note, we need to do all of those things, and we don't even know what a world where we didn't have to worry about those things is. And it's the same thing. Marriage has an ordering to bringing children into the world. But the Lord now is speaking about a fully redeemed reality where all are alive already. Whatever form marriage looks like there, it's not what it looks like here. Whatever form our relationships look like there, it's something that goes beyond the limited good that we know here. And so the first part of Jesus' answer is grow up and get a grown-up understanding of what it is to say that the dead are given life in glory. And don't settle for something that's a mere copy of this. Because the brothers that we heard about in the book of Maccabees were not laying their life down for this only a little bit better. They were laying their lives down for something eternal, something joyful, something glorious. And that's what their hearts were set on. But now let's pause with the rest of their example. Because there's something that's tragically true in this, at first glance, silly story the Sadducees tell. And it's this. How many of us how many of our young people, how many of our older people, how many of us have fallen into the trap of saying, I will wed this person, this relationship, this career opportunity, this insecurity, this resentment, this chemical, because I will find security for my life within it. It happens, doesn't it? And we give ourselves in ways that aren't exactly like marriage, but have this odd parallel of we give ourselves to so many realities that hold out the false promise of a future, of happiness, of hope, of continuation for me. And what happens is at some point that reality dies and it gave no children. It didn't open to a future for me or for anyone else. As much as I belonged to it, it came up empty. But there's always somebody else in the world that's standing there saying, well, then try me. 
It could be a different chemical. It could be a different unhealthy relationship. It could be a different career move. It could be a new insecurity and a new anger. It could be the fact that I'm just tired of trying anymore so I will marry my exhaustion and my sluggishness. And so the woman of the heart marries another brother. And that brother likewise produces no children, no future, no forward movement. It's empty. It's lifeless. And it dies. And so what happens? Our hearts who have this need to belong but don't know to whom we should belong find another brother and marry that one. Yet another chemical. Yet another anger. Yet another regret. Yet another reason not to trust and not to hope. And we give ourselves to that or we dive into something that's basically good but can't carry us forward. And that dies too without producing the life we were hoping to find. And what happens? There's another brother ready. And he's saying, I'll be the one. You can have life and children with me. I'm right here. The world always has another guy ready to say that. And so note, all too often, like the woman in the story, we find ourselves trapped in a world that keeps claiming us and saying, you belong to me. Give yourself to me. Surrender yourself to me. And dedicate yourself to making me fruitful. It sounds almost vampiric when we put it that way. And yeah, there is much in the world that does that. It sucks the life out of us. It doesn't give life to us. And so the Lord in responding the way he did, especially in his insistence that God is the God of the living, is then saying, let's be careful about that belonging. Because you need to belong to him. You need to belong to the one who is the author of life, the source of life, the defender of life, that one in whom and through whom alone your life can be truly and gloriously fruitful. And as we belong to him more fully on this earth, we are moving more surely and more completely toward the day of resurrection which is promised us. Note how marvelous that is. And how does it begin? It doesn't begin with you or me giving ourselves to God. It begins with God giving himself to you and to me. That's what it means when we say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This marrying of human reality that God himself undertakes. To claim every aspect of our life for himself. Even our woundedness and our dying that in even the dark and negative things fruitfulness and life become possible and become realities. How absolutely wonderful the faith we have when we recognize that. And note then the issue in our reading about belonging and the importance of giving ourselves to the right one. Jesus is not saying that earthly relationships are bad. He's not saying that earthly labor is bad. 
He's not saying that earthly joys are bad, but he is saying none of those things is ultimate. None of those things is the guarantee of real life, of true life, of eternal life. So however many of those other things you have, make sure you have the most important thing. And that's what our young men in the first reading show us. Having found that most important thing, they're not setting it aside for anybody regardless of the pressure they feel. Those are the brothers we want to imitate. Those are the brothers whose example we want to trust. Not the brothers who die in the story in their fruitlessness, but the brothers whose lives, even as they end on this world, become eternally fruitful. And how wonderful it is that we have these words of the resurrection and the importance of belonging as we pray for all of our brothers and sisters whose names are written here. Because like us, our friends, our relatives, our co-workers, our neighbors from time to time found themselves belonging to someone or something that made their lives less than truly fruitful. At some point, they laid aside some element of goodness or faith for the sake of making peace or compromising with this world in which we find ourselves, just like we do. Their time has come to an end, and yet the Lord is still saying, but you're not dead to me. You belong to me. And we can help them, even today, lay aside those unhealthy attachments that clung to them when they died. Note how beautiful that is. Note how powerful that is. Our prayers today can stand with them however long ago they died, before the judgment seat of Christ. And so that even as the Lord in his mercy reaches out his hand to receive them, and they find that their own hands can't reach forward because they're holding on to so much, our prayers today can remove some of those things that hold them back, maybe even all of those things. And why? So that the true older brother of our souls, Jesus Christ, might receive us, and in receiving us might give us an eternally glorious and joyful fruitfulness of life. How absolutely wonderful. How exquisitely wonderful. And how great it is that we can stretch out our hands to that same older brother today and receive him into our hearts. Because what does the Lord say? I've come that you might have life and have it with abundance. Not with a clock that is ticking down to an expiration date, but rather with a movement through this world of time that opens out into an eternity that does not end, an eternity without death, an eternity without pain, an eternity without fruitlessness, an eternity of joy, victory, and goodness. Because the answer to the Sadducee's question is this. At the resurrection from the dead, she will belong to the Lord. And in belonging to the Lord, we will all belong to one another as well in a way that is truly glorious. But our belonging to one another is real now, and it does impact those who have gone before us. Amen.